Hello everyone, welcome to the December 13th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Claims administrators who are evaluating possible subrogation in cancer cases filed by California farm workers who filed claims for having been exposed to the weed killer Roundup should take note of another Southern California jury verdict in favor of the Roundup parent company Bayer AG, the conglomerate that owns Monsanto, the maker of this product. The jury found that Roundup did not cause a San Bernardino woman's cancer, adding another tally to the winner's column for Bayer over claims that its signature herbicide was carcinogenic. The plaintiff, Danetta Stevens of Yucaipa, California, was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2017. She argued that it was caused by 17 years of spraying Roundup twice a week in her yard. She sued Roundup maker Monsanto in 2020 for failing to warn her that glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, could cause cancer. But a jury decided that Roundup was not a substantial factor in her diagnosis. Her attorney said that he plans to appeal the judgment. The new verdict marks the second trial victory for Bayer. As as of last October, a Los Angeles jury found that Roundup exposure did not cause a 10-year-old Ezra Clark Burkitt's lymphoma, a rare and aggressive form of pediatric cancer. Before these two verdicts in Southern California, The first three trials were held in the Bay Area, where juries found in favor of plaintiffs in every instance and awarded millions of dollars in damages to those three plaintiffs. The company hopes a ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court in a separate case will help put to rest the years-long litigation over the weed killer. Legal issues surrounding Roundup have prompted the company to set aside billions of dollars in provisions to settle their cases. In a case that is not quite good news for workers' compensation claims administrators, hoping to see lower generic drug prices, a federal judge suspended California's first-in-the-nation ban on pharmaceutical industries' play-for-delay deals, ruling the law intended to increase the flow of affordable generic drugs in California, likely violates out-of-state commerce protections. The law in question was AB 824, which was signed by Governor uh, Newsom back in 2019. That law creates a presumption that reverse payments settlement agreements regarding patent infringement claims between brand name and generic pharmaceutical companies are anti-competitive and unlawful in California. A violation of the California law is punishable by a civil penalty. According to the state of California, AB 824 closes a loophole in the federal Hatch-Waxman Act and ensures a brand-name company cannot continue to enforce an otherwise weak patent against generic companies through these reverse payment settlement agreements. 
The plaintiff in the case is a nonprofit voluntary association comprised of the leading manufacturers and distributors of genetic, generic and biosimilar, biosimilar medicines, manufacturers and distributors of bulk active pharmaceutical ingredients, and suppliers of other goods and services to the generic and biosimilar pharmaceutical industry that filed suit in an attempt to invalidate AB 824. The nonprofit association argued that AB 824 violates the Federal Commerce Clause by directly regulating out-of-state conduct and thus is preempted by federal patent law and the delicate balance between the competing interests of patent protections and antitrust law struck by the U.S. Supreme Court in many prior decisions. The state contends that AB 824 seeks to prevent or reduce anti-competitive pharmaceutical sales in California and thus applies to agreements to engage in that conduct and not conduct occurring wholly outside of the state of California. But the federal judge found that the law enables California to issue multi-million dollar civil penalties against companies that have no connection to the state of California, and the court said it must be temporarily enjoined due to a clear constitutional shortcoming. The judge wrote that as it is written, the civil penalties provision could hypothetically reach a corporate officer of a Delaware company entering into an agreement, settlement agreement, with another Delaware company regarding pharmaceutical sales only in Delaware. Thus, the court cannot reasonably find that Assembly Bill 824 regulates only the California market. Retiring workers' compensation judge Raymond F. Carrero recently published an excellent article on exploring the limitations of the WCAB's authority to develop the record, argument, and reopen the record on the Lexis website. As he explains, there is tension between the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board power and authority to develop the evidentiary record and the prohibitions on admitting evidence not listed on the pretrial conference statement and the closure of discovery at that point of the litigation. He says that prior to the late 1990s, the tension was less severe, as the power to reopen a case after submission for decision was somewhat limited. Back then, if the applicant failed to carry their burden of proof, they simply did not prevail and a take-nothing award was the result. Judge Carrero then discussed a trifecta of cases that seemed to open the door and exacerbate this tension by allowing seemingly unfettered power of the trial judge or the WCAB on reconsideration to further develop the record after submission of the case for decision. The the three cases are the 1997 case of Tyler v. Workers' Compensation Appeals Board, and the 1998 cases of McClune v. WCAB and Com Phi versus the WCAB. Judge Carrero points out that the WCAB continues to rely on these same three cases from the late 1990s. However, he concludes his article by pointing out that there are limitations to the application of the trifecta of cases 
and cites as authority a case that followed approximately three years later, which is the 2002 en banc case of McDuffie versus Los Angeles County Metropolitan Transit District. McDuffie set forth a limit that development of the record is allowed only if neither side has presented substantial evidence on which a decision could be based. But it is not appropriate where a decision could be rendered on the existing record and the party seeking to introduce new evidence has failed to show that such evidence was not available or could not have been discovered by the exercise of due diligence prior to the mandatory settlement conference. In the case where further development of the record is appropriate, the case sets forth a seven-step set of procedures to follow. Many thanks to Judge Carrero for his thorough and well-reasoned analysis of the limits on developing the record in a submitted case. A fraud conviction and seven-year prison sentence haven't spared Martin Screlly from a federal antitrust lawsuit tied to his former company's infamous drug pricing scandal. The California Attorney General announced that why, uh, Vieira Pharmaceuticals, formerly known as Turing Pharmaceuticals, has agreed to pay up to $40 million as disgorgement of ill-gotten gains to settle charges that it engaged in anti-competitive practices to ward off generics and maintain monopoly profits from its more than 4,000% overnight price hike on the uh, medication called Duraprim. The agreement also bans the former Wivera CEO, Kevin Molidi, from almost any role at a pharmaceutical company for the next seven years. Meanwhile, the antitrust litigation against Screlly himself who was the architect of the illegal scheme, will continue on to trial slated to begin this December. This antitrust case began back in January 2020 when the New York Attorney General and the Federal Trade Commission filed a lawsuit against Vieira, Screlly, and Molidi for antitrust violations that stifled competition. The violation permitted the defendants to protect and maintain their monopoly profits from their more than 4,000% overnight increase to $750 a pill for the drug Deparim. Deparim is the only FDA-approved drug for the treatment of toxoplasmosis, a parasitic disease which may pose serious and often life-threatening consequences for those with compromised immune systems. Daraprim was cheap and accessible for decades until August 2015 when Vieira purchased the drug, increased the price, altered its distribution, and engaged in other conduct to delay and impede generic competition. In April 2020, California and five other states joined as parties to the New York Attorney General antitrust lawsuit. All money deposited in the settlement fund shall be used for consumer redress and other equitable relief that the states determined to be related to the violative practices. And now our crime report. The owner of a multiple 
Bay, uh, multiple Bay Area acupuncture clinics admitted to committing medical insurance fraud and violating California's aggravated white-collar statute. 61-year-old Dr. Hidenori Anto, also known as Dr. Yunyang Lu, who lives in Saratoga, California, pleaded no contest to two felony counts of insurance fraud. The plea agreement requires that he be placed on five years' formal probation, serve one year in the county jail, and make complete restitution of $400,000. During the five-year term of his probation, he cannot bill or assist anyone else in billing insurance companies for acupuncture treatments. And to operate several Bay Area clinics and illegally bill numerous insurance companies hundreds of thousands of dollars, by misclassifying patient treatments, billing for work he was not qualified to compete, complete, overbilling for patient treatments that never occurred, and masking his identity from insurance carriers. In some cases, Anto billed for medical treatment on patients, but those patients were traveling outside of the country at the time. When insurance carriers attempted to stop the excessive billing by placing his clinics on prepayment review, Dr. Anto would simply obtain new identifying information and submit new bills, thus avoiding the prepayment review process. And now our regulatory news. Nearly 500 Los Angeles Unified School District employees were fired for refusing to comply with a mandate that they get vaccinated against COVID-19, while some 34,000 students have not yet been vaccinated as required. The school board voted 7-0 to to terminate these 496 employees, who make up less than 1% of the district's approximately 73,000 workers. Most of those fired had likely been on leave since mid-October, when LAUSD staffers were uh, told to have received at least their first vaccine dose. Employees were required to receive their second dose by November 15. uh, Of the 496 dismissals, 418 were classified employees who are not credentialed, but critical staff nonetheless that can include positions such as instructional aides, custodians, cafeteria workers, and others. The vaccine mandate also applies to all district students, along with charter school students, on co-located district school facilities. LAUSD is one of several large districts in California to adopt their own rules, requiring students to get COVID-19 vaccination ahead of statewide policy that will take effect after federal officials fully approve the immunization by age group. The state policy is not expected to go into place before July, but the precise date is still unknown. And in another related story, more than 100 Los Angeles City firefighters have been placed off-duty without pay for failing to comply with the city's vaccine mandate. Last August, the City of Los Angeles directed its employees to get vaccinated unless they requested a medical or religious exemption. Those who have not done either by December 18th, including firefighters, 
eventually will be subject to, to termination. 113 firefighters had failed to respond to November notices requiring them to get vaccinated. So they were placed off-duty without pay, but will be allowed to use vacation hours or banked overtime to offset their lost wages. The union representing these firefighters, the United Firefighters of Los Angeles City Local 112, requested a preliminary injunction through the court to prevent enforcement of this mandate. But last week, that request was denied by a Los Angeles County Superior Court judge. The judge said that even if all of the unvaccinated LAFD employees decided to leave because of the vaccine mandate, the department has sufficient contingency plans. The union also has an unfair labor practices charge pending before the Los Angeles City Employee Relations Board, and this, and according to a union bulletin sent out to its members. They said that while they are disappointed with the outcome, they will continue to fight to protect the rights of all UFLAC members. The union has not challenged in court the constitutionality of the mandate, but says the city has failed to follow bargaining procedures. There are more than 3,340 sworn fire department firefighters and paramedics. The department recently welcomed 54 new recruits, and another class that began in November should be on duty by March to fill any vacant positions. The DWC Executive Medical Director has just announced a new educational offering for qualified medical evaluators. The medical unit launched an update to the online physician educational course evaluating California's injured workers for qualified medical evaluators. The Center for Occupational and Environmental Health designates this enduring material for a maximum of two Category 1 credits for physicians. And the course is also approved for two hours of QME, continuing education credit. Those who took the previous course are eligible to retake the updated course for the additional credit. This course will cover topics such as how to prepare for an evaluation and outline the components of a quality report, the concept of apportionment and how to apportion to causation of disability, what constitutes substantial medical evidence and how it applies to apportionment, potential bias and how to avoid it in medical legal reports, and finally, administrative regulations to stay in compliance as a QME. The DWC also offers a CME course on the medical treatment utilization schedule. All providers involved in the care of California injured workers have no-cost access to the treatment guidelines. Both courses are offered free of charge. And in medical news, access to medical care, including pharmaceuticals, is a critical task for workers' compensation claim administrators. It may soon become a problem if supply chain issues interrupt the delivery of prescriptions written by the physicians who treat injured workers. 
As impossible as it may seem, pharmacies are reportedly running out of important prescription medications. And the U.S. Food and Drug Administration website shows that there are now are about 111 drugs on back order, including heart medications, antibiotics, and cancer drugs. The FDA said that it continues to take steps to monitor the supply chain. It also says the drug shortage staff within the FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research has asked manufacturers to evaluate their entire supply chain, including active pharmaceutical ingredients that may be impacted in any area of the supply chain due to the COVID-19 outbreak. The FDA says that there are a number of reasons why drug shortages can occur, including manufacturing and quality problems, delays, and discontinuations. Manufacturers provide FDA most drug shortage information, and the agency works closely with them to prevent or reduce the impact of these shortages. About 80% of active pharmaceutical ingredients manufacturers are located outside the United States. And a November survey released by the National Community Pharmacists Association found that the majority of independent pharmacy owners and managers are struggling to fill staff positions and deal with supply chain disruptions in addition to other market pressures. 60% of the respondents said they are dealing with supply chain disruptions and nearly 70% reported struggling to fill staff positions. 76% reported being concerned about possible tax increases on small businesses and 64% were also worried about inflation. Only 31% of respondents described the overall financial health of their businesses as very good or somewhat good, and 28% described it as average, while 41% described it as somewhat poor or very poor. An American Society of Health System Pharmacists report warned earlier this year that supply chain disruptions in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic have the potential to negatively impact patient care. The chairman of the Pharmacy Society of the state of New York told Long Island's Newsday that a lot of the product is stuck on barges, including generic blood pressure pills and cold and flu medication. And in other news, last week we reported on the WCIRB release of its Friction in the California Compensation System report, which details the primary drivers of California frictional costs and recent trends in these frictional costs. They said that in California it cost 48 cents in frictional costs to deliver $1 of benefits to an injured worker. This is almost twice the median workers' compensation system uh, and significantly above other systems that deliver medical benefits. So perhaps the MIMIC group has found at least one way to reduce these frictional costs. The MIMIC group has selected one incorporated's claims pay platform to transform its outbound payment processes. 
The partnership will modernize Mimic's claim payments infrastructure and deliver a faster and more efficient payments process by expanding outbound payment options. Mimic began operations back in 1993 to provide insurance solutions to policyholders in a state where rates were twice the national average. The Mimic Group now holds licenses to write workers' comp insurance across the entire country. The group insures and serves more than 20,000 employers and their estimated 300,000 employees with dedicated safety and injury management service teams from Maine to Florida. Prior to the one incorporated selection, Mimic distributed its payments to non-medical providers and injured workers by check through an internal system while sending payments to medical providers by mail. With the One Inc. platform, Mimic will now adopt digital claims workflows instead, moving away from paper-based processes. Mimic joins nearly 200 independent insurance clients for One Incorporated, including five of the 15 largest insurance companies in the U.S. One Inc. says it is modernizing the insurance industry through a unified and frictionless payment network. As one of the fastest-growing digital payments platforms in the insurance industry, OneInc says it manages billions of dollars per year in premiums and claim payments. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions or news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcasts, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.